Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm your host, Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode of the podcast, number 232. I think we will be patching this for months because the scope is still unknown. I think a lot of companies and open source projects, they just responded immediately and started to update things. But the problem with transient dependencies is that you might not even be aware. So it's going to be a lot of patching for a lot of folks. And I think, you know, people are going to be abusing this vulnerability for the foreseeable future. If you've been paying attention to your InfoSec news feed this week, you've probably been inundated with stories and headlines about something called Log4j, a previously obscure open source library that's a common component of a number of Apache software frameworks. This quiet little soldier of the open source software world we now know has a glaring security hole in it that allows remote code execution on systems that use the library. And that's a big problem. Why? Well, as it turns out, Log4j is a very, very, very popular software library. The firm Sonatype notes that in November alone, Log4j Core, the vulnerable version of the library, was the 252nd most popular component by download volume in the company's Maven Central code repository. That's 252nd out of a total population of 7 million software artifacts. To date, more than 2,000 software packages have been identified that are partially vulnerable to attacks targeting Log4j. Those include both the popular Minecraft, massively multiplayer online game, as well as Apple's iCloud and Twitter. SAP alone announced patches for 20 applications that it discovered using the vulnerable version of Log4j. And in the meantime, threat actors across the globe are scanning the internet to identify servers and other applications vulnerable to exploitation. Among those are both nation-state and cyber-criminal groups. What does this mean for your organization, and what does the Log4j vulnerability tell us about the shape of cyber risks and threats to come? In this week's episode of the podcast... We invited Tomislav Parison, the chief software architect and co-founder of the firm Reversing Labs, into the studio. Tomislav is an expert in software analysis and supply chain risks. And in this conversation, Tomislav explains what Log4j is and why the security hole in it poses such a big risk. He and I talk about some of the big picture changes that organizations are going to need to make in the months and years ahead. At the top of the list of his recommendations, software bills of material that allow organizations to keep track of the various ingredients in the software and services that they rely on. To start off, I asked Tomislav to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about the company he co-founded, Reversing Labs. My name is Tomislav Perichin. I'm the chief software architect and one of the founders of Reversing Labs. Tomislav, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you. Great to be here. We're here um, talking to you. Uh, It's Wednesday, and we're not even a week out from the first report of this very serious um, vulnerability, Log4j. Um, Not a particularly memorable name for a vulnerability, (laughs) Um, but it is is the big security story this week and one that... um, actually seems to kind of live up to the hype in terms of its impact. Um, So I thought we'd have you on just to update our listenership 
on what this thing is and why they should be concerned about it. Before we do that, though, could you just talk a little bit about uh, reversing labs and uh, what reversing labs does and the work you do there? Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, Reversing Labs is a security company. We've been in business for more than a decade now. Like uh, We started in 2009. Uh, our mission statement uh, at the time was to be able to analyze any kind of binary payload and basically analyze files through static analysis, decompose them as best as we can, collect information about files and do classification. It all grew way, way more than, than just that initial mission statement. But now uh, we also analyze software and look for uh, things like vulnerabilities, uh, software composition analysis, you know, various aspects of software quality in general. And I guess today we're going to talk about a, a little bit of that, which is you know, referring to the Log4j vulnerability. So let's talk about Log4j. I guess a good place to start is what what is Log4j? Um, it's a it's a component of the Apache software. Um, but what what does it do exactly? What's its purpose? Yeah, I mean Log4j is just a typical you know uh, Java library. Uh, there's you know many different. Uh, libraries of the similar nature. This one in particular is basically used for logging purposes. So, you know, uh, when you're developing an application, there's a need to log different events, essentially to either like command output or textual files, or even log them to a remote server. That's exactly what this library does. It uh, enables the Java programmers to be able to rapidly uh, implement a logging, robust logging system into their application. And it's basically plug and play for most uh, for most Java developers. Uh, there are other libraries of similar nature which kind of use the similar interfaces and they're going to be called in a similar fashion. Do not get confused by that. Uh, this is, you know, vulnerability itself is referring to the original library called uh, Log4j. And this is part of, there are a number of different Apache frameworks that Log4j is a part of, right? Yeah, absolutely. So Log4j is a very popular library and there's a huge proliferation uh, in this uh, segment, meaning that there's a lot of applications out there uh, which are using Log4j uh, as one of its dependencies. Uh, I don't know the, the number by heart, but it's uh, definitely in tens of thousands. Sonatype had some really uh, interesting data on, you know, downloads of, of Log4j. And so just even just the vulnerable versions were in the top 250 of 7 million uh, software uh, components that that they track. So obviously very, very widely used. And just to like, so if you're a software application developer, you might not be making a discrete decision to use Log4j, right? It would be part of a framework that you chose to use, but made that decision kind of at a much higher level. And, and Log4j was just part of that framework, right? Yeah, the, the the problems with developing application nowadays, and I say problems, uh, you know, loosely there, is that, you know, they're based on a large number of third-party dependencies. And as this ecosystem grows, uh, not all dependencies are self-contained. They tend to, you know, also depend on other dependencies within the same, same ecosystem. And tracking uh, the dependencies of your dependencies is uh, a very difficult thing to do. So 
developers out there could be using a log4j as something we refer to as transient dependency. So dependency of your dependency, meaning that you might not even be aware that log4j, and especially the vulnerable version, is being used in your code base. Yeah, because it's not only about tracking the components, it's also tracking which version of the component is used, right? So it's it's an even it's an even harder task than just knowing what what's in the frameworks you're using. Um, it's what version of what's in it. Correct, and and, and that's exactly the nuance point here that, that needs to be made is that there are multiple versions of Log4j library. There's you know one X branch, if you will, mm-hmm. and two X branch, and this particular vulnerability that everybody's talking about, log for shell uh, is only affecting uh, 2.x branch, and only a subsegment of those uh, versions are actually known to be vulnerable. Uh, uh, luckily for us, there's already a patch. The, the maintainers have issued actually two updates uh, to the library, so 2.15 and 2.16, uh, both of them addressing uh, the issue and another vulnerability which was just discovered as you know pretty much every developer and and uh, researcher is looking at this library at this point in time um let's talk about the 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 um, vulnerability itself it's uh it's rated critical um it's a remote code execution vulnerability meaning that uh, you don't need to be a, a local user or admin and um, it's it's considered a fairly low sophistication or or low skill level uh, exploit to to leverage. Talk about um, how this vulnerability would be exploited by a malicious actor if they found a vulnerable application. Well, first on the criticality, right? Uh, just so listeners are aware, uh, as we kind of grade the severity of these issues there's a scale from one to ten ten being the worst one this vulnerability has been graded as 10 out of 10 meaning that's the you know most severe vulnerability that you can possibly have so that that's why it takes the most you know attention and that's why it's making all all the news as well uh so that's that's in terms of criticality uh, in terms of uh you know what does it actually uh, do how how does it affect you? Uh, it's not that difficult to explain, really, since log4j is a logging library. Uh, it can log any you know textual string uh, an application needs to log. If that string is controlled by the user that's being logged, so any arbitrary you know string, uh, then that string can be parsed by the library. And that string could cause the library to load a remote resource. So quite literally to ping back from wherever the logging library is running to a remote server, uh, expose the environment information where you know the library is running, but also load a remote uh, class into the context of that Java logging class. library. Yep. Yeah. And execute that code. So that, that's why we're saying it's a remote code execution vulnerability because just by sending out a string to a server, if that string is being logged through this library, it can cause remote code execution. And it, it should be noted, the researcher who discovered this and reported it um, was based in China, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, um, and worked for Alibaba. Is that is that right? Is that, do I get that right? 
That's as much as I gathered as well. I mean, it seems like uh, it's conflicting stories, really, that has been discovered in the gaming community, and then the Alibaba guys actually started to document the issue, and then it's just started to proliferate uh, through the internet. And and one of the one of the platforms we've heard the most about in terms of exploitation is is Minecraft. Is that is that right? Yeah, it sounds been... weird. It sounds weird, but yeah, <laughs> Minecraft is is one of those uh, Java based applications that yeah. does use log4j for logging purposes, and they are logging uh, arbitrary user strings, and therefore you could inject remote code execution this way. I guess somebody really wanted to win at Minecraft. <laughs> Leave it to the gamers. There you go. <laughs> they're, they're a determined bunch. But there are others as well. And in fact, um, uh, iCloud is affected. Twitter is affected. I mean, yeah. you know, there's a list of something like 1,600 or more um, platforms and applications that are vulnerable to this. And it is a pretty absolute list. Yeah, it's growing growing by the minute. I think uh, various organizations like, you know, uh, CSERTs and, you know, CISA as well, they're all been trying to, to compile the list of vulnerable and non-vulnerable applications and try to coordinate this this massive patch patching uh you know wave that's about to hit us there's going to be a whole bunch of applications just issuing patch releases and it's going to be like this for a while because it's going to take a lot of time for people to figure out if they're actually dependent on this library yeah, yeah. so let's talk about that um how do you figure out if you're exposed to this vulnerability um again given how widely used it is not only by different Apache frameworks, but also, of course, by third-party applications that then leverage those frameworks and that you might be a consumer of yourself. Right now, that's a million-dollar question. That, that's the question everybody's asking themselves. Um, and honestly, uh, we have had a whole bunch of support tickets as well. You know, Our customers reaching out to us literally asking, are you affected by this vulnerability? Do you have a public statement about if you are, what are the affected products and, and, and the rest of it? And we had to take, as everybody else, we had to take a really deep look into our entire code stack uh, and figure out where are these points where we can even have Log4j as a transient dependency. And answering that question is difficult because not everybody uh, is right now publishing their software bill materials, which is pretty much the essential way of knowing about dependencies in, in, in software packages. Doing that uh, is likely going to become mandatory in the near future, just because of everything which has happened during last and this year. Uh, we had SolarWinds attack, which started this discussion. Then we had the executive order signed by President Biden about, you know, looking into making uh, software bill materials mandatory, at least in government use. And now we have even a minimum set of requirements defined for how a software bill of materials uh, should look like. But its key value is the ability to create the software inventory. So when an attack like this or vulnerability like this actually happens, you have a place where you can ask this question and you can get an answer of where is it located? What do I need to update? What do I need to take take offline? All of those questions become a lot easier to answer than they are now. So did reversing labs do that for your own software? Absolutely. Uh, we have actually built a platform that creates software bill of materials for third-party 
uh, software, even if that's not provided, uh, with the whole notion of uh, automatically creating this software inventory. So then when this type of an event happens, we have a place to ask that question. And uh, as soon as the news broke, we were like, probably like in 15 minutes, knew all, all the affected services, what do we need to uh, you know, patch, uh, what's the exposure, even you know, if we couldn't update, uh, and there were a few services like that immediately, uh, to at least isolate and apply the proposed workarounds by the maintainers. So this brings up, as you said, this whole issue of software bill of materials, and it's a term that the Biden administration and CISA and others have started to throw around. Um, and, and folks have been talking about this concept for a long time. But my sense is out there in the you know bigger world of uh, software publishing, application development, let alone the enterprise space, this is still a pretty new concept. So just to make clear... Software Bill of Materials is something both for software publishers and for their customers, right, to be able to understand what's what's in the sausage that we're making and also, I guess, the sausage that, as a company, we may be consuming. Absolutely. Uh, we, we provide it from, uh, for our own uh, software packages, so our you know customers know exactly what we're depending upon, and they could then create these software inventories for themselves if they choose to do that. Uh, and we're also generating these software bill of materials for third-party software components that don't provide it just yet. So even if this uh, becomes a requirement, uh, not everybody will be able to do it. Uh, not you know, not do it correctly, uh, not keeping it up to date. All of those things uh, are, you know, at, at the crux of why SBOM is so critical. And, you know, these guys are, uh, the maintainers are, you know, open, this is an open source package, really. Uh, there's only so much you know, time in the day for them to do everything and, you know, asking them to provide software real materials and all the other things that we actually depend upon. It is a bit of a stretch. So we will need to have these systems that can automatically generate and inspect and validate uh, software bill materials moving forward. So if you have one of these, let's say you're you're buying software as an enterprise or you're producing software and you're, and you're providing this to your partners and your customers, um, does it just sort of, does it, if you were to look at it, does it just sort of list out all the various software components that are in the, you know, recipe of this application that you're that you're selling, or how, how does it, what does the software bill of materials look like, and how does it, how can it be operationalized? Well, that, that's the general idea. Uh, typically, uh, it does the best effort to do that, even though it doesn't necessarily always list out all of the components. There are certain things which are uh, not known to the producers of SBOM because mm -hmm. uh, you have to take uh, into consideration that a lot of these uh, software bill materials are being manually created. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they're not going to be completely accurate. And even if they're programmatically generated, there are certain libraries which are niche or you know smaller in scope and therefore yeah. wouldn't appear. Log4j definitely you would. Go, right? Yeah, exactly. And and Log4j definitely would appear on most software bill of materials, and you would definitely know that it's there. I'll just tell you how our CISO, uh, yeah, ISO, actually uses it. Uh, uh, 
literally collect all the S-bombs, uh, put them in a single place and monitor them for vulnerabilities. And as long as, you know, something like this happens, then we have the central repository. We can ask it questions and get exposure information. Uh, there are open source tools out there that, uh, you know, work with the standard S-bomb formats like Cyclone DX, and they enable you to create this graph of dependency and ask it questions. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty handy, but you're still dependent on the information and the accuracy of information in the S-bomb. So that's why, you know, generating the S-bomb is going to become so critical. How do you, if you're vulnerable to this, how do you get out from under it? What is the process for um, not being vulnerable to the Log4j uh, mm-hmm. vulnerability? Well, first, I think it's unfair to call it a vulnerability. Certainly, it is a security issue. No one's debating that. I just think that this was added as a function that was requested. And mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. such, it should be taught as a feature. Mm-hmm. And from the security standpoint, right. I think it's just a case of unsafe default uh, default right. configuration. Right. So it shouldn't be enabled by default. And, and that's exactly where, uh, where the maintainers have you know uh, what what they've done right now as one of the mitigations in the latest patch this is now disabled by default and you can enable it should you need it and it, it should have been like that from the get-go that doesn't necessarily matter at this stage I mean you know these things happen but I, I, I think adding uh, security review uh, for these kinds of feature modification requests uh, it is 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 a good idea. Now, probably the project didn't you know have security support at at that stage. They were you know tiny or you know underfunded and all the other things. All that can happen. Uh, just moving forward, I, I think you know future feature modification requests like this should be put you know under scrutiny just because we've just now learned something very important. And and this is like a big issue just in I think just generally now especially as we're becoming you know more and more reliant on open source components like many of these libraries um and components that are very very widely used um might be created and managed by a single developer or a very small team of developers you know they were developed to do a very specific thing but as you pointed out you know, might not have had the most robust security model or testing in place um, to anticipate all of these potential, you know, misuses. But then they end up used all over the place, including in very sensitive applications, you know, and it's like, it's just sort of like a, it's like a gap that exists in the current system, it seems like to me, right? Oh, absolutely. I I, I think always think back to that, you know, XKCD uh, sketch, which kind of, has this blocks on top, and there's this one guy in Nebraska maintaining this library, you know, unpaid and so on for for a very long time. In, in reality, it is a lot like that. And you know, what I think SBOM is gonna help us actually do is identify the critical stuff, right? Like if like if you had the SBOM for all of these packages that you're using in, in your organization, let's start there, right? you would know you know that this is a highly used library and is proliferated across all of your code base therefore you know having that single point of failure you know makes it a high risk so so do, i think we're going to start as an industry to think like that and and you know that might lead to uh, better security budgets for these components that would be ideal uh, but it also might lead to kind of fragmentation 
in the libraries themselves as people kind of start to mitigate their risks by yeah. using more. But that's okay, right? Yeah, that, yeah. Th- that, that's one strategy. So final question, if you um, are concerned about this as an organization, or at least concerned about attacks against this, are there ways that you can monitor things you should be looking for on your network to spot uh, potential attempts to exploit this? Well, that's a very complicated question, to be honest. Right, right now, <laughs> that's why I saved are, it for last. <laughs> yeah, people are scrambling. Uh, so, so, so there are web application firewall rules that people have created they're been embedded in the in the products themselves but the problem is this this protocol can be obfuscated in almost unlimited number of ways so you know people are creating rules right now and they're being constantly updated but they're just trying to match what's mm-hmm. actually being used in the wild mm-hmm. and kind of whack-a-mole yeah exactly so so i don't think we can have a good generic rule at this stage mm-hmm. but looking looking at the patterns of, of that you know ldap and uh, jndi strings in the logs would be a good start and what's your expectation about about what we're going to see with this vulnerability in terms of its um you know the impact it's going to have just in the threat landscape i think we will be patching this for months because mm. the scope is still unknown i think mm. a lot of companies did really good and in open source projects they just responded immediately and started to update things but the problem with transient dependencies is that you might not even be aware and just you know without the s-bomb it's really going to be hard to figure all that out so it's going to be a lot of patching for a lot of folks and i think you know people are going to be abusing this vulnerability for the foreseeable future Tomislav Pearson, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us thank you very much for having me it was a pleasure we'll do it again Tomislav Parison is the chief software architect at Reversing Labs. He was here in the studio to talk to us about the Log4j vulnerability. 